Welcome to Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxe. If you vote in person this election season, chances are you'll go to a place with some privacy to mark your ballot in secret before handing it in to poll workers. But the right to keep your choice to yourself is a newer addition to American elections. Before the late 19th century, the experience of casting a vote often included doing so in public under the watchful eye of neighbors and quite often employers. Today's episode is a story of workplace intimidation, labor unrest, and of debates over who should be doing the work of overseeing fair, secure elections. An important part of that story took place right here in Maine, thanks to a disputed election involving Portland's own representative, Thomas Reed. It's also part of a wider struggle involving clashes over civil rights, former slaves in the South, and the boundaries and meaning of freedom. Don't worry, this conversation will involve the role of President Grover Cleveland in separate, non-consecutive points in the discussion. The president doesn't have the power to delay an election, and I don't have the power to delay the start of this show. Let's do this. My guest today is Gideon Cohn Postar, a Northwestern PhD postdoctoral fellow at the Andrea Mitchell Center for the Study of Democracy at the University of Pennsylvania. Gideon, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. Gideon, could you please give an overview of, of what you research? So my research is focused on voter intimidation in the late 19th century and specifically economic intimidation. So ways in which employers or union representatives or bosses would find ways to intimidate employees into controlling their votes. And so my focus is on the post-Civil War era up until about 1896 and the way in which those methods of intimidation forced legal changes, but also cultural changes in how we see the vote. Now, I know in your research, you uncovered a particularly noteworthy incident right here in Maine. Could you talk about the kerfuffle, the controversy, if you will, that occurred in 1880 in a Maine congressional election? Absolutely. So I think kerfuffle is a good word for this. Uh, the reason I, I focused in on this election, it makes up a portion of my dissertation research, uh, is because it produced a whole lot of sources. Uh, basically, what happened was in 1880, there was a congressional election uh, in the first congressional district there, which covered Portland and parts a little bit west, that went to a contestation. And what that means is that one of the people involved in the election, the loser, uh, believed that he should have won, that the winner had won illegitimately. And so the loser under the Constitution and a whole bunch of federal laws is able to bring an election contestation. Uh, and they bring that directly to Congress. Uh, Congress decides who its members are. And so uh, in this case, uh, the winner was a man named Thomas Reed, who later became Speaker of the House, uh, was a very prominent Republican advocate for voting rights for African Americans and also a prominent advocate for a high tariff. And his opponent was a man named Anderson, Samuel J. Anderson, who's a general in the state militia, president of the Portland Ogdensburg Railroad, uh, and a Democrat with backing from the Greenback Movement, which was kind of a radical uh, currency inflation group that had a lot of attention at the time. 
And Anderson lost the election by only about 100 votes uh, out of uh, about 20,000 cast. And so he immediately challenged. He said, yes, I may have lost, but I believe that some of the votes, many of the votes that Reed won, uh, were illegitimate, that they shouldn't have been counted. And so he went around the district, and this is a process that still takes place to this day. Uh, not that long ago, in 2018, there was a contested election in North Carolina that had a similar process, though a lot has changed in federal election law since then. Uh, but so Anderson and his lawyers went around and interviewed people who'd voted or attempted to vote to ask them what their experience was like. And all of that interviewing, and then Reed, Reed does the same to try to defend himself. And all of those interviews, all of that evidence gets compiled into files that then end up in Congress and then 130 years later get found by people like me. What sorts of voter intimidation or other kind of election interference were alleged? So the first thing to note about economic forms of intimidation is that they're a lot harder to find than violent intimidation. And that's why this case was so interesting. Basically, economic intimidation usually requires two things. It requires a threat and observation. So the threat is usually an employer saying, if you don't vote this way, I will fire you. And then the observation is the employer coming to the polls or sending someone to the polls to watch them. And so a lot of the testimony that Anderson gathers is of employers telling their employees, you have to vote for Reed, usually framing it around the tariff, saying the reason you have a job is because of our high tariff here. Uh, without that tariff, you won't have a job. So that took place at the Sanford Mills, just outside of Portland, where uh, one of the witnesses testified that one of the one of their bosses said, if Democrats come to power, it would necessitate the shutting down of the mills. Now, I got I to gotta stop you there, Gideon, because I voted in elections. And so I'm thinking to myself, okay, I show up at my polling place, you know, at the library. I go into the voting booth and I, I color in the, the circles on my ballot and then I deposit it. So how can my employer intimidate me if that's the case? Well, that's a great question, Ian. And it's because there was no secret ballot at the time. The way that we vote now is uh, actually a pretty recent development. So in the 1880s and throughout almost the entirety of the 19th century, Americans voted publicly. And this looked different in every district and every precinct, but usually what would happen is that there'd be a polling place set up, uh, sometimes perhaps in a library or school, but often just in a local business. And there would be a ballot box and outside that polling area, there'd be a few tables or a few <laughs> gatherings of people. Uh, and those people were from each party and they would offer ballots to voters. And that ballot was created by the party itself. The party paid to print it and chose who went on it. Uh, and then voters, as they approach the polls, choose who to take a ballot from. And that's a pre-filled ballot with everyone's name on it. And then they walk into the polls. There might be a registry where they have to say their name, whatever it might be, um, and then drop the ballot into the box. And so anyone can see what's happening. Anyone can watch you as you approach the polls. You really have no method of secrecy. And so employers were able to walk right up to the polls with them. In some cases, in one case in Portland, the overseer of a road build crew walked with his men to the polls so that they were working. He said, all right, we're taking a break and walked them to the polls and stood inside the polling booth, inside the polling place as they voted. Uh, and one of the men whispered, uh, he was a bricklayer on the crew, whispered to one of the poll workers, this is not the ballot I would vote. Could I help it? But he knew he didn't have a choice. The only other choice they had would be to not vote. And one man, Henry McGee on the crew chose not to. Uh, he refused to vote. He went home. This is uh, in downtown Portland, not far from Congress Street. 
and he said, I cannot you know, bet, vote the ticket they want me to vote. Uh, so I'm going to go home. I don't care if they fire me. And it's kind of interesting in that case that he wasn't actually fired. McGee, as far as I can tell, <laughs> did not lose his job. But that mm. threat, the threat to all the others around him that, okay, if they, if they break from the boss on this issue and the boss will know if they do, it's possible they could lose their job, seems to have been really effective, even though it wasn't carried through in all cases. What was the justification for this practice of voting? Like, why was this public demonstration of your support considered the, the fair way to vote? Well, when it comes to voting, you really have to choose between insulation and access. And what I mean by that is insulation is, is also could be referred to as protection. So how protected are you? How protected is your ballot when you go to vote? Now, the way we vote uh, traditionally now, going to the polling place, uh, you have to potentially show an ID. You go into the polls with a secret ballot. You fill it out there. No one is allowed to see what's going on. And then you vote the that ballot immediately. That is a very insulated practice. It's very difficult for someone to find out how you voted. It's hard for someone to coerce you and then be sure that you voted the way they wanted to or bribe you. But it's actually not a good approach in terms of voter access because it's actually very difficult to go through all those steps. You have to pre-register. You might have to have a specific form of ID and that might change based on who's in power. Uh, you might have to take time off from work to vote or you might have to leave your children at home without health, without childcare. Uh, and then it takes time to go through that process. Uh, and there's always long lines because voting secretly means that you have to have a certain number of booths. You can't just have people taking a ballot and filling it out on the corner. Uh, you also so you have to be able to read. Absolutely. And the ability to read and not just to read, but also to understand the ballot, especially considering that ballots back then and now could be pretty complex. You're voting on a whole lot of people and maybe a whole lot of issues and a lot of things that you might not understand perfectly. And so if you can't read and you can't not just read, but also have high literacy and high in involvement in politics, you might not know who to vote for. And so the system we have now has very little access, but a lot of insulation. And so a lot of voting laws is trying to find the right balance between those two. And that's where we come down now with uh, a lot of the controversy over vote by mail, where it's a less insulated system, because while you are able to seal your ballot and you're able to send it off, you're still filling it out at home. Potentially, there could be coercion or bribery from within your family or within your community. And that's a little easier to, uh, to coerce or bribe when it's at home than at the polls. But the access is so much greater, particularly in a pandemic. So a lot of states have turned towards this idea of privileging access over insulation. Well, that was sort of what was happening back in the 19th century. The idea was anyone can come vote as long as they're registered and a citizen. Uh, and, you know, we're not going to have any protections because who needs protection? Uh, you know, if someone intimidates you, just stand up to them. And that proved to be kind of a, a totally unrealistic approach to the late 19th century when all these men who worked for wages and are terrified of being laid off because they being laid off in the winter, especially, especially as voting takes place in the fall, uh, could be incredibly damaging to them, could potentially be fatal to them and their families. This, and issue, so those, of, this issue of rowdiness and intimidation gets to one of the favorite concepts I encountered uh, when teaching the subject that I was hoping you could elaborate on. And this is, don't Google this, folks. Men of ordinary firmness, <laughs> right? Uh, and the idea that the polling place was 
was rowdy. There were people selling and giving away whiskey and everything else. But so there's this qualification of a man of ordinary firmness. Can you elaborate on this for us? Absolutely. So a voter of ordinary firmness or man of ordinary firmness, as it was often called, is this idea that in order to vote, you are carrying out a, a very important citizenship right, uh, but it's something that is only given, like the right to vote is only given to those who can protect it, who can vote without dependence on other people, who can vote without bad influences. Obviously, this was never true in reality. But the assumption was that if you have the right to vote, you have the ability to make your own decision. And so Congress, when investigating cases of voter intimidation, adopted this standard, which actually originally came from England, uh, this idea that you, you were a voter of ordinary firmness. Uh, and that meant that when they're determining if an action should be considered intimidation and therefore maybe lead to overturning an election or, or changing the vote uh, total in an election, they assess whether or not the act that happened would have intimidated a voter of ordinary firmness. Now, of course, it's kind of a, an, an absurd standard, uh, but and what is the law but absurd standards that are difficult to apply? Um, and so this was often applied to cases of economic intimidation where someone would say, okay, yeah, a boss said, vote this way or I'll fire you, but shouldn't a man of ordinary firmness have said, you know, fire me if you want to, I'm going to vote the way I want. And yeah, ideally, but in the system that had been created of ex extremely precarious labor, no social safety net, uh, you know, and again, with winter coming on, uh, people are voting in November. In Maine, they're still voting in September, actually, but in Maine, the winter begins much sooner. This uh, is true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, therefore, these people who come to the polls intimidated either violently or economically aren't able to meet that standard that Congress lays out for them. And it's not until uh, 1898 that Congress starts to think, the House Committee on Elections starts to think, maybe we should consider the context in which these actions happen instead of just having this over-the-top standard of a man of ordinary firmness. But by then it's much too late, uh, in part because ballot secrecy has been enacted and so these incidents take place less but also because African-Americans have, for the most part, been disenfranchised throughout the nation and cases of uh, intimidation move from the polling place to the law. And we'll, we'll get to that briefly because that's really important. One, one callback to an earlier interview we had Alison Lang on a few episodes ago talking about woman suffrage and thinking about the person or man of ordinary firmness, it bears mentioning that this argument was sometimes deployed as an excuse for why women should not have the ballot because polling places were so rowdy and intimidating and violent often that no woman of any respectability would be caught dead near one anyway. And so therefore the voter has to be a man. And so right. we should be factoring that these reforms in with that. Well, and the flip side of that was the argument made by suffragettes that by having women at the polls, men wouldn't be as rowdy because they, you know, they'd be in the presence of a civilizing force. But I think a lot of this then connects back to the idea of the secret ballot. So the election we're discussing takes place in 1880. In 1888, Massachusetts enacts the secret ballot law that we know today, or, or a similar one. There were a lot of changes over time, but effectively a secret ballot and an official ballot provided by the state. And most states follow in Massachusetts's footsteps within the next four years. Uh, Maine enacted in 1891, I believe. And so by 1892, almost every state outside of the South has ballot secrecy. The Southern states follow along much slower. But 
by enacting ballot secrecy in large part to stop this kind of economic intimidation that had become seemingly an epidemic, these states had then, in a, in a strange and kind of unintentional way, opened up the possibility of women's suffrage. They kind of removed the argument of rowdiness by protecting white male working men from coercion. They then made it easier for women, and saying women in that era, primarily meaning white women who were allowed to vote, uh, allowed them to come to the polls. So Thomas Reed and this dispute in 1880, uh, this disputed election, did play an important role in leading to the gradual adoption of the secret ballot in most states, you've argued, yes? Yeah, I think that Thomas Reed's election is important in a lot of ways, in part because of the experience of this challenge that he gets. So Reed goes on to become Speaker of the House. He becomes a transformative Speaker of the House uh, and changes the way the House functions in a much more democratic way. But he also advocates forcefully for voter reforms. And in 1890, pushes and almost is able to enact, he passes the House, but not the Senate, basically an early version of the Voting Rights Act. And that was very much his focus uh, throughout his career, in addition to uh, the tariff, of course, and uh, fishing policy, which was still very important for Maine. And so Reed kind of becomes a national figure on this issue and on the issue of democratizing the House. But he never really forgets about this case, which was the closest election ever had, uh, where he was widely accused of uh, participating in employee intimidation. He, of course, always denied it. And it's probable that if it did take place, he didn't know about it. It was his men on the ground or people who supported him, um, or he might have known about it but didn't explicitly approve it. But he frequently does mention uh, this kind of economic intimidation as being the crime of the North. So he differentiates violence in the South, saying that in the South they're you know, massacring and intimidating and, and coercing African-Americans. In the North, this kind of economic intimidation takes place, and we need to stop that. And the secret ballot is one way he pushes for it. Uh, but so he also could is we, very. Could we oh, back up here? So yeah. for for our listeners, the Fifteenth Amendment in 1870 clarifies that no man should be denied the vote on account of race. So what sorts of voter intimidation are, uh, in particular, sort of white supremacists in the South deploying to try and keep black men from? exercising the vote after the after the 15th Amendment that's going on that Reed is concerned with. Right. So there's a couple of different categories to focus on. One is that they are indeed economically intimidating voters in the South, too. And it's interesting that uh, in most of the national discourse on economic intimidation, it focuses on white men in the North. I think it's in part racialized because they're able to advocates are able to say we should protect these voters because generally everyone agrees that white men should be allowed to vote. It's kind of a non-controversial thing, uh, whereas protecting black suffrage is controversial at the time. And so uh, in the South, African-American men and also white Republicans are subjected to economic intimidation and also violent forms of intimidation. Uh, a favorite method would be to kill a prominent white or black Republican the night before an election uh, and either leave their body in town or disappear them as a message to everyone there, by the way, this is what happens when you participate politically, uh, and that would decrease voter turnout. There would also be uh, gangs of people who position themselves outside of election areas. Um, and then, of course, there were the legal disfranchisement efforts, which really take off in the 1890s, grandfather clauses and understanding clauses and literacy clauses. Uh, Do you explain it... what those... Oh, absolutely. What those are. Uh, so... 
these are, are come about these sort of forms of voter disenfranchisement come about uh, to kind of get around the 15th Amendment to disenfranchise black people without running afoul of the Constitution. And one way they do that is by mandating that anyone who uh, votes has to be literate. And they not only have to be literate, they have to demonstrate an understanding of what they've read. Uh, and these are often things like you have to be able to read a section of the state constitution and explain what that means to the poll worker and the poll worker gets to decide if you explained it properly. And so that's open for a whole lot of abuse. I'm guessing the poll worker is a white man who is a loyal member of the Democratic Party. Oh, you, well, of course. Uh, uh, I, I guess <laughs> I got that understanding part of that clause. Okay. <laughs> yes. And then, of course, uh, in order to circumvent that, because so many white men in the South also were illiterate, many of these states would add a provision uh, that would often be a sunset provision that would expire after a certain number of years, that voters did not, voters who were illiterate did not have to undergo the understanding clause if their father or grandfather had been able to vote in the 1860s before the 15th Amendment. And so this was a way to make sure that uh, illiterate white men could still vote without having to be subjected to the indignity of the understanding clause. Um, and, and so these clauses kind of work together. And there were a number of other methods, uh, legal and extra legal that were used. And Reed very much is trying uh, throughout the 1880s, and especially when he becomes Speaker of the House in 1889, to change that method. He, the bill that he creates uh, that's actually pushed by Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts, who later becomes a senator, would have federal inspectors in any area that requested, where people requested their presence who could then take a look at the polls and make sure that people aren't being intimidated, that people are able to vote when they need to, and to kind of prevent all of these methods, especially things more, especially the more overt methods. Like Is this the same piece of legislation that opponents called the force bill? Yes. So ah, uh, the showing the dominance of the Southerners <laughs> in the historiography, even to this day, I happen to, on, the, on mainly history, we're big fans of, of the force bill, and yet we still call it the force bill. Absolutely. It was a, a terrific bit of demagoguery to label the federal elections bill the force bill. Uh, and a lot of Southerners and also Northern Democrats and some Republicans talked about uh, Northern bayonets. This is a return to bayonet rule. These inspectors were going to be backed by military force and you know, doing whatever they could to make this law that was designed to enforce the Constitution, not palatable to most people in the North. And the Senate ends up filibustering it for months and then just not passing it. Uh, so Reed's efforts come to naught on that area. But if you could tie this together for us, so it seems like with the dates you're mentioning, the federal elections bill and the secret ballot both come about at roughly the same time, the very late 1880s. Were there efforts to attach these two reforms together? Absolutely. So the initial draft of the federal elections bill in the House actually contains a secret ballot provision. And uh, that's widely considered a good thing, but it's difficult uh, for reasons that seem kind of strange for us now in that federal and state and local elections are technically separate elections. They're just all taking place on the same day for the most part. The federal elections bill provisions would only apply to federal elections. So if you're voting for a House member and also for state legislatures, 
un under the provisions of the law, you would have to vote in secret for the House member, but not necessarily for the state legislative member. So it, it kind of would have created a bit of a problem there if states didn't follow through and also enact secret ballot laws. Uh, so there was a potential for some confusion there, also a potential for the of the observers that were gonna be sent to these areas to violate ballot secrecy in those states that had enacted the secret ballot. So these two reforms kind of crashed into each other. And I think one of the most interesting elements, and this is something that I'm exploring more as I turn my dissertation into a book, a process that is taking quite a while, uh, that the secret ballot is a state reform and the federal elections bill is kind of observation is federal. And the reason that the trajectories of these reforms go the way they do is because the people they are trying to protect are so different. So the secret ballot is pitched in the North as a way to protect white working men from their bosses, uh, to protect them from capitalism invading democracy, which is obviously still a concern today, but to do it in this very specific way, to stop the workplace from entering into the polling place. And so states were able to enact this pretty radical reform because it was done to protect working men and specifically white working men. Can Southern ask, states don't feel I the need Gideon to do that. Then, that's, a great, that's a great point. So can I ask, many listeners might want to know, do these working men, like those in, in Portland in 1880 who felt intimidated, do they feel a, an affinity with, for example, African-American sharecroppers or, or, white, or poor whites in the South who are also being intimidated at this time? What a hopeful question. Uh, no. In fact, a lot of the rhetoric around uh, economic intimidation and the secret ballot is the fear that white men will become African-American men in their political rights. And a lot of this rhetoric is around the idea of slavery and dependence. And most of it's very explicit. There are newspapers, congressmen, labor leaders saying, if we don't have ballot secrecy or some form of protection, we become like black slaves. And that's the worst thing they could imagine. And so they very clearly carve out the South and specifically African-Americans from that protected circle that they're creating. And that really does persist. So the reason that so many Southern states lag in creating secret ballot laws, North Carolina doesn't have one until 1929, for instance, is because they've already solved the voting problem that they had imagined, which was that black people were voting. That was the main problem that the leaders in North Carolina had seen. And once they'd done that, they didn't really care what the system of voting was. Gideon, you've talked about Republicans and Democrats and the role of partisanship. Could you clarify what do the political coalitions look like in the 1880s? What kinds of people identify as Republicans? What kinds of people identify as Democrats? And, and why was that? So largely, the Democratic Party is made up of white, whites in the South who are not thrilled with the racial settlement, uh, with biracial democracy, uh, fighting kind of to restore what they refer to as local rule, but is really white rule. Uh, but that party is also paired with a party in the North that is often the party of immigrant uh, immigrants from Europe uh, who, who often try to call themselves white, were often not assimilated as white as such yet, uh, but often Irish and Italian immigrants, uh, kind of the large urban machines that we are familiar with in Chicago and New York are democratic. And so the party is a, a kind of a strange pairing of uh, fairly poor workers in the North and fairly wealthy, often uh, men in the South. The Republican party is not just the opposite of that. It's, it's often, uh, 
interlaced, but the Republican Party is often people who have something to gain, who, who stand to gain from the progress that has taken place since the Civil War. So that includes African-Americans who've been enfranchised, who won the right to vote and a whole bunch of other citizenship rights as well during the Civil War. It's also people who uh, have something to do with the commercial economy. So people who uh, own factories or might work in factories that enjoy tariff protections, which ensure that uh, their wages, but also the prices of the goods they make remain high. Uh, and also of people who have a genuine interest, white men and women who have a genuine interest in African-American freedom. Uh, so in the one key thing to note is that in the 1880s, um, the issue of the currency, which becomes a huge issue in the 1890s, we don't even need to get into that, is still bipartisan. So no one really knows what the currency should look like. That's a total mess. But really, the parties are split on this idea of whether or not the government should intervene in both the economy and in people's lives when it comes to defending their rights. And Republicans come down strongly in both cases, saying, yes, the government should have something to do with the economy. And it should have something to do with how people are able to express themselves either at the polls or just in society. If you want to take a real walk on the wild side, you can read some modern fan pieces for the last truly small government democratic president in American history, Grover Cleveland, <laughs> uh, elected twice non-consecutively in 1884 and then again in 1892. And I have to say it is, it is something else. The Grover Cleveland fan pieces that have appeared in recent years. Uh, because of course, Grover Cleveland was a huge fan of white supremacy and a huge opponent of women's suffrage. But apparently this is not a bug, but a feature if you are a Grover Cleveland stan in the 21st century. Absolutely. There are books, there are articles of Grover Cleveland, the last honest, true conservative Democrat. Um, the kind of remarkable thing for me for those is they never actually talk about then what he did during his presidencies. Uh, you know, things like crushing striking workers with military force. Uh, uh, when he had unified control of the government in his second term, he presided over Democrats wiping out almost every voting rights law that had been passed uh, during the Reconstruction era. And he happily signed them. He lied to the public about his health, uh, ruined journalists' lives. He also married a woman that he had been like responsible for as his ward. I, I just don't understand the Grover Cleveland stands, as it were. I think there, he does have the advantage of the non-consecutive terms that he served. Every time anybody, any sitting president loses, immediately their fans invoke Grover Cleveland for a comeback. Yeah. And, so, and I will confess that when I was in college, I knew nerdy people who referred to the fact of pulling a Grover Cleveland if they dated a person, then broke up with them, dated a second person, broke up with them, and then returned to the first person. <laughs> they would say that was a Grover Cleveland. Uh, you know, I think, the I think the fact that you guys were making jokes like that reflects maybe why you were having so many ruined relationships, it's, but it's that could be true. true. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> no, no good can come from detailed knowledge of Grover Cleveland. <laughs> so getting back to the, this other connection, the federal elections bill fails at the same time that secret ballots become the norm in the majority of American states. Why this divergence? I think a large part of the divergence comes from the 
coalitions that were pushing for these and the way that they were framed. Uh, so the secret ballot laws are there to protect white working men. Uh, they were pushed by some pretty radical people, including the Socialistic Labor Party, uh, Greenback Labor, um, socialists and communists were, were virulently in favor of ballot secrecy uh, because they saw it as a way to protect voters' uh, political rights from their economic dependency. They, they had determined that the problem, uh, what was often called the labor problem in society, was that uh, a manhood, uh, a universal manhood suffrage democracy could not coexist with a wage-working industrial society. So this was a serious problem at the time. And to fix it, leftists, Democrats, Republicans, everyone kind of ended up deciding that the way we're going to fix that problem and to stop economic intimidation is through ballot secrecy. And so by framing it around that issue, which was a really serious issue in the 1880s in particular, there were a whole bunch of strike waves and really violent strike uprisings. Um, by separating the workplace from the polling place, they're able to say, we've solved that problem. Meanwhile, the voting rights, or excuse me, the federal elections bill, a preamble to the voting rights bill as it might be, was designed to provide federal oversight of elections. And even though it would have taken place throughout the country and potentially helped a lot of people in the North as well, it was framed as this force bill that was aimed at the South. And so the discussion around it was always that this was an attempt by Republicans to take control of Southern elections and control them just like they had during military rule and during Reconstruction uh, and to basically perpetuate the Republican Party in the South. And I think there was a lot of truth to that, that Republicans saw the federal elections bill as a way to revitalize the party in the South. It's it, happening at the same moment that they're pushing West and attempting to admit all these new states that even to this day don't have enough people to warrant being states. And so, you know, those things We're are We're going to get a lot of angry time. emails from Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't name names. I didn't name names. Uh, but so, like, that's happening at the same time. The Republican Party is trying to expand its base, uh, trying to tackle new issues. Uh, and so... In a, a strange way, the federal elections bill is seen as a party issue and the secret ballot isn't, even though it really is. So in a lot of states in the North, I, I did a lot of research into New York and Connecticut. In New York, where a Democratic governor actually vetoes secret ballot bills because he thinks it's going to hurt him, eventually he's finally convinced, no, 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 this could actually help you. And meanwhile, in Connecticut, where a Republican governor vetoes a secret ballot bill uh, because he's worried it's going to hurt him. And then the backlash to it is such that he finally allows a secret ballot bill to pass because he realizes that opposing it is going to hurt him. And so the, these issues do cross party lines, but politics is still very much a part of it. And so I think it's very interesting that the federal elections bill becomes a partisan issue, whereas ballot secrecy, which remains a partisan issue, is, you know, is widely seen as a reform that that's time has come, that everyone suddenly decides needs to happen. Interesting. Now, you mentioned these cross-partisan alliances. I'm wondering if there were people pushing for the secret ballot who perhaps were not fans of small-D democracy. So I'm thinking of the once you institute secret ballots, uh, especially in the Northeast, states like Massachusetts start instituting IQ tests and poll taxes, even though these are supposedly only a thing of the Jim Crow South. And for right. some anti-democratic activists hoping to limit voting, the secret ballot potentially could have been a, a way to do that. Did they also support the secret ballot for those reasons? Absolutely. And I think that that's a good point that actually reflects part of why the secret ballot passes so quickly, because 
very conservative people who are worried that the suffrage has been expanded too far and that too many people have the right to vote, that not the right kind of people, and you can imagine who they're talking about, have the right to vote. Those kind of uh, restrictionists see the secret ballot as a way to limit voting to the qualified. At the same moment that in a lot of the same states, a lot of pretty radical left-wing and labor advocates see the secret ballot as a way to correct a, a very serious problem for them. And so they don't really get along, but these groups advocate for the same thing. And what's interesting is that in some states, the restrictionists are the ones who provide the final push. So Massachusetts is a good case where, because it passes first, uh, and it's not that it's uncontroversial, it's just that everyone in the state seems to be in favor. And it seems to be largely written by members of like an elite group of uh, Bostonians who want to make sure that the suffrage is purified. Meanwhile, next door in Connecticut, a, barely a year later, most of the push for ballot secrecy comes from the Socialistic Labor Party and comes from uh, labor leaders who see this as a way to stop economic intimidation. And these, these pushes are happening at about the same time. They're very much influenced by each other. And they come up with ballots that have similar results, uh, but the intent behind them is very different. Strange alliances. Absolutely. That would be a good title for a book. Oh, that's true. Well, from you, hopefully. <laughs> That'll be book uh, two. Shifting our gaze to the present, you are uh, where this interview is coming out just a short time before our own election of 2020. Do you see similarities or echoes in, in language over election security, either in terms of, of workers in Maine or, or federal oversight of Southern elections? Uh, do you see echoes of those in, in debates being held today over, for example, mail-in ballots or other, other ballot access issues? Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the key echoes I see as well is the weaponization of election issues. So the way in which uh, the president has used uh, claims that there are Ill illegitimate votes and uh, people who shouldn't be voting are voting. And usually these are highly racialized claims from him on Twitter uh, has a lot of resonance for the 1880s uh, when people are in the South and throughout the country are arguing that we need to purify the electorate, that the people who are voting shouldn't be voting or the people who are voting aren't voting properly. Uh, a lot of that language really does seem to echo today. I think one of the key elements as well is this balance between insulation and access. And I think to some extent, uh, ballot advocates on the left have failed to explain this properly. Uh, they've kind of, many people treat voting as either it's legitimate or it's not legitimate. Uh, there's kind of, you know, one or the other. What they miss is that it's very much a process of protecting legitimacy as much as possible. And when it comes to guaranteeing voter access and voter insulation, you're eventually going to have to choose between the two. And that doesn't mean that you're going to have an illegitimate election. But I think what is clear is that in the 1880s, elections were becoming illegitimate because voters weren't properly insulated. Economic intimidation, violent intimidation, precariousness of workers, all that meant that voters were not properly protected. Now, in the midst of a pandemic, and with voter access being the problem, I think we're at risk of having a moment where we have an illegitimate election because not enough people have voter access. And then people interpret that in this pandemic world as, well, it doesn't matter what the election results are announced as because I know that people were prevented from voting the way they should have. And I think that's one of the dangers. If we don't have a strong enough turnout through vote by mail, uh, through early voting, through uh, election day voting, then no matter what the result would be, it'll be illegitimate in the eyes of both parties. 
This is a good point. One of my takeaways from what you've talked about is that this, this voting access uh, legislation in the, in the late 1880s uh, and its failure represents a real missed opportunity. And so that seems like great proof that fairly kind of straightforward pat narratives of American history is just progress or, or dangerous oversimplifications. But speaking for yourself, what is it that you most hope people would take away from your scholarship? I think one of the key things to take away, especially with my writing on ballot secrecy, is that we can't understand a law and its effects in a general sense. We need to look for the context. And so just like Congress failed to do when they have the standard of a man of ordinary firmness, we can't look at the secret ballot and say it was a tool of, you know, taking away the ballot from people because in some places it worked that way. We also need to recognize the context in which it was passed. And so in that moment, it was there to restore the vote to people who really didn't have it, these working men uh, who weren't able to vote the way they wanted to, which meant they weren't really able to vote. Uh, and so in that sense, it was very progressive. Uh, but then in other places, for instance, in Maryland in 1896, when they passed ballot secrecy, it's specifically uh, to take the vote away from African-Americans. And so being kind of awake to the context in which each of these moments takes place, you're then able to come up with an understanding of American history as you know, progressive, conservative, backlash, move forward uh, in all of its complexity. Okay. Wrapping up, what are you up to these days that you're excited about that our audience should check out? Well, one of the things I'm most excited about is uh, kind of a, the reassessment that we're having now of Civil War memory. And that process is taking place around monuments and memorials. Uh, the Journal of the Civil War Era has produced a number of webinars uh, that you can watch live uh, over the next few weeks, but also they've had a number over the summer about ways in which we can better understand the history of the Civil War. Uh, and uh, I'm very interested in all the work that's been going on there, uh, particularly in September when a group of Civil War historians worked to recontextualize uh, some locations and some monuments uh, to provide a more full history of the Civil War uh, throughout the country as a, a great opportunity. Sounds great. And if our listeners want to follow you on social media, where would they do so? Uh, well, they can occasionally read my Twitter account, SaberGid510. Uh, though that is a mix of baseball and history. Okay. Well, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Gideon, thanks so much for stopping by. Hopefully you'll come back again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. That's our show. Join us next time as Alexandra Montgomery and I discuss the hijinks of colonial land speculators active in both Maine and Nova Scotia. We'll talk about the differing reasons British colonizers tried to prove they owned the place, the central role the indigenous owners of the land played in the process, and what looking at this story from both sides of the border can teach us about how early Americans thought about property. Follow us on Twitter, at Mainly History, so you don't miss a thing. When it comes to the title of Best Audience, you're the incumbent, and we think your term will be unlimited. See you next time.